Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by MyBookie, where you can bet on anything, anytime, Anywhere and all new users through the month of September who create a brand new account can use the promo code UGA today to get a 100% deposit bonus on your very first deposit. You guys are going to want to jump on this as quickly as you can because each and every week to wrap up the week, Charlie and I are going to be using my bookies lines to give you guys winners to put some money in your pocket. So don't wait. Go ahead. Join today using the promo code UGA. But all right, guys, let's get rolling with this thing today. As you guys know, I'm your host, Tyler, and up this week for the dogs is Samford. And as excited as we all are for the home opener and the chance to get back inside the hallowed grounds of Sanford Stadium, I'm pumped up, you're pumped up, we're all excited for that. With all due respect to Chris Hatcher's boys, I just don't think one single person listening to this episode right now wants to listen to me do a deep dive into Sanford. I just don't believe that that person actually exists. And as a podcast by, for, and of the people, we want to actually give you content that you want to listen to. I know, novel idea, right? So on weeks like this, leading into games like this against Samford, we're going to switch things up a little bit and replace the traditional game preview episode that we do leading into every single game. We're going to replace that with something a little bit different this year, at least for these games. And we're going to replace those preview episodes for games like this with a combination episode that's going to feature both and upon further review segment, that's what we're going to call it, and an SEC power ranking segment, which is something that we've never done before on this podcast, but given that we are in SEC country, I thought you guys would be into that, or I mean, at the very least, you would prefer that over a deep dive into Samford, because I mean, let's be real, nobody wants that. But we're going to open the show today with this new Upon Further Review segment. And let me just kind of set this up and explain what this is real quick. I think it, basically it's it's pretty self-explanatory, but this is a segment that is just going to give me a chance to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the previous week's games. And you guys know me. You know I love a good deep dive. Obviously, you know, we record the recap episodes on Sunday. We do that every week. 
but that's kind of more of an instant reaction type deal. You know, depending on the week, I might not even have had a chance to do one full rewatch of the game before we sit down to do those recap, like instant reaction episodes. I mean, I still have thoughts on those episodes. I mean, I'm at all of the games. I watch them very closely, but I mean, you guys know there, there's still a lot of things that you miss when you're watching a game live because your eyes can only be in one place at any given time. And sure, I scan the field pre-snap looking for coverage tendencies, looking for personnel packages, all that kind of stuff, but you only have so much time to do that before the ball is snapped, especially in this day and age in the age of tempo. So there's just stuff that you don't see. There's stuff that you miss when you just rely on like what you saw instantly there live watching the game. But once we get to Wednesday, now I've had a couple of times to go back and rewatch the tape and do it the way I like to do it, which takes a long time. But I go back and I watch it with a fine-tooth comb, guys. And those rewatches always give me more info. And sometimes those rewatches are going to affirm my, my initial takes, what I bring you guys, what I tell you guys on the instant reaction episode. Sometimes they refute a little bit. That happens at times. And then, of course, a lot of times you see things that you didn't see at the games and you can go back and like look for personnel packages and count up numbers, stats, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what this segment is going to be for. So now that I've had a chance to go back and rewatch the previous week's game, this Oregon game a couple of times with that fine-tooth comb, I got some additional thoughts that maybe didn't make the recap episode that I want to bring to you guys. So we're just going to get a chance to go a little bit more in depth, and uh, I think that's a, that's a cool thing to be able to do. And going back and re-watching this game a couple times, it, this usually is what ends up happening. You feel better about some things that you didn't feel great about coming out of the game, and you feel a little bit worse about things that you felt great about coming out of the game. It's usually how these things work. And there's, you know, occasionally a couple things you're like, oh, wow, like I thought that was good. I didn't realize it was that good. And I want to start with the good stuff, right? I want to start with that because like, that's that's what we want to hear, right? We'll get to some of the things that I think we need to work on that I wasn't exactly thrilled with. I think we need to improve on, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Let's start with the good stuff. And I want to start with Stetson Bennett. Curtis and I talked about him on the recap episode. We did not get a chance to touch him on the mailbag because we didn't actually get a ton of questions about Stetson, which was surprising. I thought we'd get a lot considering that was a, a career best performance for Stetson, at least in terms of, of really, actually in terms of everything. Like, let's just be real. That was the best game Stetson has ever played in his life at the college level. And you guys know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you, you know kind of how this has gone down. Curtis has been the guy that for a while was the leader, the president. You know, I used to be the president of the Jake Fromm fan club. Well, Curtis has been the president of the Stetson Bennett hate club. But he's slowly but surely coming off of that. And I think after what he saw on Saturday, at least temporarily, he's kind of like resigned that presidency. Now, the thing is, like he's already always ready to kind of just jump back up and reclaim that mantle. He's just laying in wait, waiting for Stetson to make that first mistake. You guys know. You know what's going to happen as soon as Stetson makes that, that first bonehead decision. Because this is going to happen, guys. It happens to every single quarterback. Curtis and, and and people that are of the same mind are going to be sitting there waiting and they're going to spring, right? They're going to spring into action when that happens. But I will give Curtis credit now. like he's He's been objective with what he's seen from Stetson despite what he was saying about him last year. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I've always 100% said Stetson has to be the guy. I said that most of last year. I, I was like a lot of people followed in the SEC Championship game. I was emotional. and I, I mean, I, honestly, he just played very, very badly. And I, my thought coming into the national title game, or at least going into the cultural playoff, was like a lot of you guys, like, if Alabama could force us to beat them having to throw the football, which they were able to do in the first matchup in the SEC title game, that Stetson wasn't going to be able to do that. Our offense was not equipped to do that. And so maybe JT would give us a better op- better option because he has proven 
if it's about throwing the ball to win, that he could do that. We saw that in the back half of the 2020 football season. And uh, at times, I guess, at the beginning of last year, although, you know, obviously the Clemson game, we didn't see much of it. But South Carolina, he was very good in that game. Vanderbilt opened that game, but obviously that was Vanderbilt. So, I mean, I'll own that. I did say that. But I, I've certainly, I believe that I've had Stetson's back and I've been a Stetson supporter more than the average Georgia fan. I spent the entire offseason telling you guys that I felt like this was going to be the, the best Georgia offense in the history of our program, and Stetson Bennett was a big part of that, primarily the, the fact that Stetson was going to have a full year as the guy, as the number one starter, and what that meant was he got number one starter reps, which is something Stetson had never had. You go back to the numbers from last year, guys. I mean, we laid them out for you all offseason. Stetson, statistically, was actually an elite quarterback from an efficiency standpoint and from an explosiveness standpoint. Now, he didn't get as many opportunities, but the numbers were there. The advanced metrics were there. The only holdup I had was like, okay, well, if we have to beat a team throwing the football, can Stetson do that? I think he answered that a little bit in the Michigan game, I guess to a degree in the national title game, but still, like we were able to run the ball against those teams. and like Our running game was not completely taken away from us. The, the sample size that we had was, okay, that... SEC championship game against Alabama we got behind had to throw the ball and it didn't work out so well so that was the only thing kind of sitting in the back of my mind but he answered that question emphatically obviously against Oregon but I just felt with the entire offseason of reps as the number one guy Stetson was going to improve I thought Stetson improved tremendously from 2020 to 2021 and that was without the benefit of having those reps I mean Stetson was like an afterthought guys Kirby had essentially told him you know, in spring practice and fall camp, like you're just not going to be the guy. Like you're a valuable piece of this team. We need you here, but you're not going to be the guy. You're not even the number two guy. And then lo and behold, JT goes down and Kirby reverts back to what he's comfortable with, a guy that he's that he's seen do it and win SEC football games and Stetson perform very well and the rest is history. But I felt like once he had an entire offseason of being that guy and getting those reps, we were going to see Stetson take an even bigger jump from 2021 to 2022 than we saw from 2020 to 2021. And that was a big enough jump. And I know it's a very small sample size, but in week one, we saw that play out, that Stetson Bennett is playing at a level that he has never approached in his career. And so my point to all this is to say, I think Stetson Bennett could potentially have an NFL future. And that's one thing, as a guy who has supported Stetson for the vast majority of his career here, at least the past year or so, for the most part, not not every second, I'll own that, but for the most part, one thing I've always said is, you know what, Stetson might not be an NFL caliber quarterback. He might not have an NFL future. He might not make an NFL team. He might not get drafted. But I don't care about that because... All I care about is what Stetson Bennett does for Georgia. And I think Stetson Bennett is a really, really good college quarterback. And obviously, I still believe that. But I'm going to take it a step further now. Not only is Stetson Bennett a very good college quarterback, if he continues to put up performances like he did against Oregon, he is not only a very good college quarterback, he is an elite college quarterback. And if he continues to, to perform at that level, Stetson Bennett absolutely has an NFL future. Now, does he have an NFL future as a starter? I'm not ready to say that yet, but this guy absolutely could make an NFL team if he plays the way that he did on Saturday. Now, again, that's an extraordinarily small sample size, but sitting here right now, I mean, we're going to play better defense. Oregon's not a bad defense, though. I mean, they don't have the personnel that we do, but I mean, what teams on our schedule have better defensive personnel than Oregon? Oregon's recruited at a top eight level over the past four or five years, guys. What teams that we have on our schedule this year have better defensive talent, have multiple first-round draft picks on their defense? They're not many. Kentucky doesn't have those guys. They might have one here or there. Florida has a couple solid players, but I don't think that the entire defensive roster is any more talented than the Oregon roster or the Oregon defensive roster. South Carolina has a couple players, but again, 
up and down the defensive roster. They're not as talented as Oregon is. They don't recruit like that. Tennessee, get out of here. Not even close. Vanderbilt, obviously not. Missouri, no. Mississippi State has some good players, but they're not as talented on defense as Oregon is. Oregon has recruited better than Auburn over the past four to five years. That's just a fact, guys. So if Stetson was able to play that well against arguably the most talented defense on our regular season schedule, why can't he keep playing at that level? And if he does, yes, I'm ready to use the E-word. He will be an elite quarterback. And he absolutely will have a shot to make an NFL team. I think he will get drafted if he continues to play like that. I know the knock is, well, he's so small. Yeah, I get it, guys. That used to be a problem for NFL quarterbacks. That's not a problem anymore if you can play. Now, Stetson is not, he's athletic, he's mobile, but he's not as as athletic and mobile as a guy like Kyler Murray. No, obviously he's not. But the guy's athletic, he's mobile, he's accurate, he's smart, he understands football, he's tough as freaking nails, he believes in himself, he's a great teammate, he's a great leader. You're telling me that if he keeps playing the way that he did on Saturday, that some NFL team's not going to take a flyer on this guy at the very least? Like, no, I, they absolutely are if he plays like that. And, you know, when people talk about Stetson's NFL future or lack thereof, they like to talk about the skill set. Like, oh, he's got a noodle arm. He's too small. We were talking about the small part. But, you know, he makes boneheaded decisions. He makes these mistakes. He's just a former walk-on. Like, there's no way. Guys, if you haven't had a chance, go back and rewatch the game. Or even if you don't have time to do that, just think about what you saw on Saturday. Stetson was doing NFL things. He was making reads pre-snap. He was making reads post-snap and going through progressions. He was putting the ball on the money where guys could catch it and continue moving and get those yak yards. He stood in the pocket and stared down defenders barreling towards him and took shots and delivered the ball on the money. He took the checkdowns when the checkdowns were there. He wasn't forcing balls like we saw him do at times last year. He was fitting balls into tight windows. And yes, I know people think that Stetson, oh, he's small, he's a former walk-on, he's got a noodle arm. That's just simply not true, guys. It's simply not true. And he showed that again on Saturday. Now, does he have a Matthew Stafford caliber arm? No, no one's freaking saying that. But that there's, it's not either like Matthew Stafford caliber arm or noodle arm. Like there's a spectrum. There's, there's a happy medium. And Stetson is certainly closer to a Matthew Stafford arm than a freaking noodle arm, in my opinion. And again, I think he showed that on Saturday. The only thing that we did not really see on Saturday was us like pushing the ball vertically down the field, but that's not really a concern for me because I saw Stetson do that last year. I know that Stetson can do that. We were one of the most explosive offenses in the country last year. He was one of the top five most explosive quarterbacks in the country in terms of yards per attempt because he was able to hit those balls down the field. Does that mean he's going to hit every single one of them? No, of course not, but no quarterback hits every single one of them. Even the best guys miss some of those shots. They're called low percentage throws, for a reason. So that's my first big takeaway now that I've had a chance to go back and rewatch this. Obviously, I knew Stetson played well in the moment in the game, but it's one of those things where, yeah, I knew he played well. I didn't realize he played that well. And it's completely caused me to rethink what I perceive as the ceiling for Stetson Bennett. And again, I've thought more highly of him than I think your average Georgia fan has, but even I'm rethinking like, did I not think highly enough of Stetson? Because I'm going to use this word, Heisman. I'm going to use it. I'm going to use that word. Now, I don't think Stetson's the front runner. I don't think he'll, he probably won't end up winning, and he probably won't end up making the trip to New York. But again, I go back to it. If he continues to play like that, and our offense continues to operate at, at that kind of rate, and it continues to look that way, and we continue to give the quarterback opportunities to throw the football, where we're throwing the ball about 60% of the time, as opposed to run the ball 58% of the time like we saw last year, then 
yeah, Stetson is going to be in that conversation because he also plays one of the best teams in the country. And he's got he's a guy, he's a name dude, right? It's a great story. So I'm I'm not saying he's going to be in New York. I'm not saying that he's going to win the Heisman. But if he plays like he did on Saturday and our offense continues to give him opportunities to do that, if Todd Munkin continues to dial up those opportunities and continues to open things up more offensively, then absolutely he's going to be in the conversation and it would not be out of the question for him to make at least make a trip to New York if all of this continues on. And speaking of Stetson Bennett, I've waxed poetic about how well I think he played and how good I think he's going to be this year. But let's just talk about a scheme thing here. One thing I also, and I noticed it a little bit in the game because obviously he ran for a touchdown. But going back and rewatching it, he ran the ball. We had more design runs for Stetson than I even realized watching the game. I knew there's a couple, like two or three I could think of, but there were more than that going back and rewatching this game where we actually gave Stetson the opportunity on design runs. Now, some of it's where he's reading, we're doing some zone read type stuff, but I thought that we were trying to deliberately use Stetson's legs more than we did last year. And now last year, obviously, Stetson is an athletic guy, and it's, we were able to move the pocket with him last year. That's not new. We saw us do that a lot this year, some design rollouts, play actions, sprints, all that kind of stuff. That wasn't new. But what was new is that we saw a willingness to use Stetson in design run situations more frequently than we saw last year. It, again, we did it at times last year, but it was not a major part of our offense. And that is something that I was screaming about last year because, you know, the rationale Kirby and Todd Munkin used all year to support playing Stetson in favor of JT once JT was healthy is that we like what Stetson's mobility gives us. And I agree with that. I love that. That's so important in today's game. But one issue I have with that is like, well, you can on one hand say that Stetson's mobility is what's keeping him in this job. And then on the other hand, not actually use his mobility in a more deliberate way. Now, it's great to be able to escape pressure and, and create on the run. Like the, All those things are great. That's valuable. But when you have a guy that the express reason you say he's playing is because, oh, he's more mobile than the other guy. Well, if that is indeed the case, which I think it was, actually use that skill set. Use those legs. It can be a weapon. I don't think we did enough of that last year. And I guess I get it to a degree, you know, JT wasn't fully healthy until about mid-season or so. And so if something happened to Stetson, then like, is Carson Beck ready? We know Brock Vandegrift wasn't ready last year. Like that's, that's a tricky proposition when you're talking about a, a potential national title run. So on some level, I get it. I mean, Stetson, and I, yeah, he's a smaller guy, but like Stetson's smart enough. What I always said was he's smart enough to know when to get down. He doesn't have to run like he's Tim Tebow. He's a power back. He doesn't have to be that kind of dual threat quarterback. He can be a guy that runs, picks up yards, whatever he can and gets down. Like he can do that. And he did that plenty last year. I just felt like we didn't do that enough. Well, if the Oregon game is any indication, it looks like we have become more comfortable with the idea of using those legs. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. Number one, you guys, you, you saw some of the pitchers in the offseason, right? Like at fall camp, and you saw him out there on Saturday. This dude's body is different. He's still smallish, still short. He's not the biggest guy in the world. But he has put on some muscle, guys. Like He's more well-defined. He's stronger out there. He looks like a different dude. If you go back and look at Tate from Stetson in 2020, and you look at Stetson now in 2022, not only is he playing better, physically, he looks the part. He looks better than he did. I mean, when he came in in 2020 against Arkansas and Fayetteville, I was like, oh my God, this guy get, might get murdered. Like he's going to get broken in half. I do not feel that way now. So I, I think he's bulked up a little bit and he's gotten to the point with the strength training program, give Scott Sinclair and company credit. He's gotten to the point where I think he can hold up a little bit better and take some of those blows if they do happen. And the second part is I, I think Carson Beck 
is a factor in this as well. I think our coaches do feel really confident in Carson Beck if indeed he's a guy, not just Carson, but also a guy like Brock Vandegrift. And I know the coaches love, love Gunnar Stockton. I've been told that multiple times from different people that they love Gunnar Stockton. He's not ready right now, but they're very high on what he will be in the relatively near future. So I also think another part of our willingness to maybe use Stetson more in the design run game is that we just have more confidence in the guys behind him right now. And I think that's an important factor here as well. But, you know, it's it was, you know, zone reads at times. But also, there's one play. Did you guys pick up on this? It was the true, like, old school, like, original Gus Malzahn RPO, right? The triple option version of the, R- version of the RPO where you're running zone read. Looks like zone read, right? Quarterback pulls it because he gets the pull read from the defensive end. And he takes off around the around the edge, but he has one more option, right? Then if that corner, if that safety comes screaming upfield at the quarterback, he pulls it and throws it to receiver, right? That's what Auburn did to beat Alabama all those years ago. That was like the original, original, at least in terms of like my recollection of when I actually saw those happen, like the actual RPOs before RPO was a term that we even used in college football. We did that. We did it once, only once, and it did, we didn't complete the pass, but... I think the fact that we ran that should be very encouraging. I think that's another sign that we are going to be more willing this year to actually utilize Stetson's legs in the run game and potentially work some old school triple option RPO off of that, which is just another layer that we're going to add to this offense that already has multiple layers of the personnel groupings that we can use. So that had me very excited on top of just Stetson's general stellar play. And guys, I've got plenty more to talk about here today, but before we move on, I do want to take just a quick minute or two here to remind you guys about our friends at MyBookie. I told you guys at the outset of the episode, they are running an exclusive promo right now for you guys, listeners of the Glory UGA podcast. It's very simple. All you have to do is go to MyBookie online, MyBookie.com, and sign up for a new account and use the promo code UGA when you do that, and they will double your initial deposit. So if you put in 100 bucks, you're going to get 200 bucks to work with. If you put in 500 bucks, you get 1,000 bucks to play with. It is that simple, guys. To me, it's an absolute no-brainer. And I'm telling you, I've used my bookie. I've used a lot of different books over the years, but once I settled on my bookie and I found my bookie, it was game over for me. Like That's just who I use. Deposits are easy. They have a ton of different deposit options. You can use credit cards. You can use MoneyGram. You can use crypto stuff if you if you've got that going on. A lot of a lot of different deposit options. Whatever works best for you. Payouts are quick and easy. Again, a lot of different options to get your payouts. I find that they have the best lines, the most accurate lines. They also have the best options in terms of parlays, prop bets, contests that you can enter. Anything and everything that you want to bet on when it comes to the world of sports. Trust me, my bookie's got it. So head on over to mybookie.com today, sign up for a new account, use the promo code UGA, and double that initial deposit. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. All right, guys, let's keep this thing rolling here. I got one more positive that I want to talk about before we move on to some of this stuff I think we need to continue to work on and improve at. Broderick Jones. Broderick freaking Jones at left tackle. He is that dude. Broderick is him. He is that guy. He did rotate some. He played 64% of our offensive snaps compared to Warren McClendon playing 80% at right tackle. Warren McClendon also slid over and played left tackle quite a bit. And that gave up the opportunity to Marius Mims to go in there and play right tackle. who played about 44% of our snaps. Actually, exactly 44% of our snaps. So there's a little bit of rotation there. But when Broderick was in, I mean, that dude, you know, Curtis and I, one of the questions we got at some point in the offseason was, how many first-round draft picks do you think Georgia is going to have? I think there was one of the bold predictions that we did a couple weeks ago, where it was like, Georgia is going to have five first-round draft picks again this year. And we were So we were trying to count them up. And one of the guys that we mentioned was Broderick Jones. Like, that guy certainly has the potential if he has that big year, if he takes that big step this year. Because we saw him do it at times last year, but he wasn't a consistent starter. He filled in at times for Salyer when he got injured. He came in during the national championship game. We made the switch, pulled Erickson out, put put Salyer at right guard, and brought Broderick in at left tackle, which is something that Curtis and I and many other people were calling for the literally the entire 2021 season. It finally happened in the most critical moment. And hey, you know what? Who would have thought it worked out, right? But maybe he wasn't ready earlier in the year, but he was certainly ready by the end of the year in that national championship game. And he hit the ground running on Saturday. And this guy, I mean, he's the total package, man. Like he's not the biggest guy physically, um, but he he's still a 300 pounder. He doesn't look, he's got a great body. He's very well put together. And one thing that's kind of held him back early in his career is that he got injured when he first got here. He had a pretty rough injury like a vehicle accident, like a little scooter kind of deal. And um, he couldn't work out for a while, guys. Like he was actually making a move when he first got here, couldn't work out, and that, that put him behind. But now, like that's a distant memory. He is caught up in the weight room. He's looking the part physically. He's strong. He can withstand the, the, the power bull rush. He's getting great movement at the point of attack. He's playing with great leverage. And athleticism has never been the question. That's what that's what I always knew Broderick had. Like, that was the guarantee to me. I mean, if you guys aren't familiar with him coming out of high school, he was actually a pretty big-time high school basketball player. In fact, one of the reasons he did not want to enroll early is because he wanted to play his senior high school basketball season because it was that important to him, and he was that good. I mean, this dude's a 300-pound offensive lineman that's doing 360 dunks. And obviously, we noticed a lot of differences with the offense on Saturday against Oregon. Obviously, there are a lot of differences. But one of the things that we saw us do more frequently was pull that left tackle and get him out in space. Whether it was on jet sweeps, like fly sweeps, whether it was on tosses the running back, whether it was on screen plays, we were getting Broderick out in space on the perimeter. And that dude just looks so natural and effortless out there. Like if you just would have watched him run and didn't know he was 300 pounds, you're like, yeah, that dude's just like, he's a, he's a skill player. He looked that fluid out there running down the field, leading the way, blocking for these skill players. And we just have almost an embarrassment of riches right now at tackle. I mean, well, we have three guys that I feel at four guys when Ernest Green gets back healthy. He was making a lot of a lot of moves and opened up a lot of eyes during fall camp when he got here on campus. I mean, he was our number two left tackle. Mims was over there at right tackle and playing at times at left tackle as well. But he went down with a little bit of injury. He'll be fine. It's not a major thing, but 
we have four guys at tackle that our coaches feel really, really good about. I think at least three of them could end up being first round draft picks, and maybe four. I mean, Warren McClendon's been the guy. It's weird. Like he's the guy that's been the, the starter for three years. He's, he's the three year starter. But we kind of look at him and say, well, like you know, from an athletic standpoint, a physical skill set standpoint, he's not quite as physically gifted as the other guys. But like, why can't Warren McClendon potentially be a first round draft pick? So love what I saw from Broderick and really all the tackles. McClendon, who's just such a rock force. I thought Amarius Mims played really well and he got opportunities as well. But Broderick, man, like he is that guy. He looked the part on Saturday. Here's one more thing before we get into the bad stuff. I know I told you that was gonna be the last positive thing, but this is not this is a neutral thing. It's just an observation. So, you know, watching the game, obviously I saw us use a lot of 12 personnel. I didn't see as much 13 personnel. And I don't know if you guys caught that as well. I mean, we talked all Austin. Can, can Georgia be running 14 personnel? I thought we would say thir- we'd see 13 personnel more than than we did last year. I mean, we started to use that more as the season progressed, but we didn't see it as much as I thought we might on Saturday. We we seemed like we had two dudes at tight end that we feel really, really good about right now, obviously in Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington. Arik did not play near as much as I thought he would. I didn't think he'd play as much as, as Washington or Bowers, but I thought he'd play more than he did, especially in meaningful t- snaps. Actually, it was Delp, who I'm not surprised. I I had heard that Delp was getting some snaps and reps ahead of Gilbert as fall camp progressed, so I wasn't necessarily surprised to see him out there in those situations before I did Gilbert. I just thought we'd see both of those guys out there in those situations, but that wasn't really the case. So I went back and I counted up. That's one of the things I like to do when I go back and rewatch these games. I want to, I count up the personnel groups. I try to get those percentages. How often are we running this, this personnel grouping, this set, so on and so forth. And so of our first 48 plays, and I say 48 plays, that's when we went up 42 to three. So that's when we took the starters out or most of the starters out and put in Carson back. And we still scored again after that, but once we went up 42 points, we had run 48 plays. 28 of those were in 12 personnel with two tight ends. Now, different formations, but in 12 personnel. That comes out to 58%. That's slightly more than what we used 12 personnel with last year. So it was interesting. You know, it's just one of those things to watching the game. I thought, I felt like we were in 12 personnel like 75% of the time or more like on Saturday. That's what I thought just in like my naked eye watching the game. That was my recollection, but go back and counting it. Like we were in a lot, but only only 50, 58% of the time, which you say only, that's more than just about every other team in the country. And I, 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 I was right about the 13 personnel. I did not see a lot of 13 personnel. Actually, I was like, did we run 13 personnel at all? And the, the 48 snaps that I went back and counted for before we like kind of just stopped even really trying to score, I did not see one example of 13 personnel outside of the red zone, which was interesting to me because I do think that we have that in our offense. I know that we have it in our offense, and it's just one of those things. Like, we, Do we just feel like we didn't need to pull it out because we were just dominating Oregon? Was it just not part of the game plan for this specific team? But you know we have it, and cer- certainly as the season goes on and guys like Oscar Dupp, and both are, and Enrique Gilbert, like he's not a true freshman, but like he's almost because he spent so much time away from football. Once those guys get more comfortable in the system and they continue to get reps, I think we'll see more of those guys. I think you sh- we'll start to see some more 13 personnel, but uh, we just didn't see really any of it on Saturday. Now, one other thing that I, I thought I saw, but I didn't really see, I thought that when we were in 12 personnel, we would flex out into five wides more than we did. I thought we did it you know, five to 10 times. I was wrong. I went back and recounted, again, the first 48 snaps all the way up to, to the point where we get, went up 42-3. I only counted three different instances where we were in five wides with 12 personnel. So two tight, two tight ends on the field, but with an empty backfield. So we clearly have it in our offense. I thought we did that more. Now, we did use empty more than we had, five wide looks, but we did that primarily out of 11 personnel with only one tight end on the field and three wide receivers on the field. Then we would flex out 
whoever was that running back, typically Kenny McIntosh, a couple times it was Dejan Edwards. Didn't really do that with Kent, with Kendall Milton. That's not really exactly what he brings to the table. But I just thought we did that more out of 12 personnel. But we did. We did a couple times, which means it's in the playbook. It's in the offense. And that is something that I do expect to see us do more often. Again, is it just one of those things? We, we did try it early. But we didn't go back to it as often as I, I thought we did, again, watching the game live. But again, maybe that was because we just were dominating them and we didn't feel like we need to continue to show those things and we hold some of that back but I do expect to see us do that more because that's what we were talking about in the offseason like that's one of the things that 12 personnel can do like you can we can run so many different formations with and you can put so much stress on defense in different ways but one of the ways you can stress defenses is you can you can start your formation in like a a tight you know whether it's a bunch set whether it's a wing set you know offset tight end whatever have everybody in tight force defenses to go with their base personnel their heavier defensive personnel and packages and then you motion out into a five wide look and now you've got linebackers trying to cover Brock Bowers in space linebackers trying to cover Kenny McIntosh in space that's just not going to work for you and I think that we're going to do that more as the season progresses we just didn't see as much of it as I thought we would and as I thought that we did sitting there in the stands watching a Mercedes-Benz on Saturday okay guys I hate to do this it's not fun to talk about things that we need to improve on but it's a necessary part of of running a podcast and talking about these things objectively now defensively Obviously, holding a team to 313 total yards and giving up only three points, that's a great performance. It's a really, really good performance, especially considering it's week one and we had so many new faces, so many inexperienced guys getting their first taste of like real meaningful game action. I felt that Oregon would score more points on us because of that very factor. I don't think Oregon had a good game plan coming to this game. I thought they got a little too cute and fancy offensively. I think Kenny Dillingham was trying to show like how much he knew and how cool he was and how high-powered is and, and how up-tempo and wide open his offense was rather than just relying on the best part of their team, which is their offensive line and trying to run the ball as, which I thought would be more effective. But hey, you know what? I'm not the one getting paid a million plus dollars to call these plays. But anyway, you cut it. It was a good, a very good performance even. I think we can say that by this inexperienced and largely young Georgia defense. But it was somewhat misleading as well. You know, obviously we had the two turnovers. One of them, the one by Chris Smith, they were driving for a a score, whether it was going to be a touchdown or a field goal. But Chris made a great read on the play, confused Bo Nix because, like, that's just what people do. It's very easy to do that. And uh, made a great play on the ball. And, you know, turn the ball over, turn that into a touchdown. T- take two turnovers, turn them into, into 14 points, two touchdowns. Great. Awesome stuff. But Oregon, I don't, I don't want to call it a bend but bro- don't break effort because I don't think we bent that much. Maybe it was a, a slight bulge, but it wasn't like a, a full-on bend, I don't think. But they still had some success at times moving the football. I told you guys in the recap episode, I still stand by this. I thought they had too much success running the football. We'll get to that in a minute. You know, 140 yards, that's not our standard. There's only one team that had more yards rushing against us last year than that. Only one time. And in week one, we already had a team rush for 140 yards. I don't even think they were even really committed to running the football. So that's slightly concerning. We'll get to that more in a little bit. But Oregon did drive for at least 35 yards on four of their nine possessions. Almost half of their possessions, they drove for 35 yards. I know 35 yards, that's not that much, but depending on where you get the football, that could that could certainly lead to a score. And you compare that to last year against Clemson, obviously this defense is not going to be as good as last year's defense. We all know that. Still going to be very good. It's not going to be last year's defense. But last year against Clemson, we only gave up two drives out of 11 drives for Clemson that they drove for at least 35 yards. Here's another thing. I, you know, one of the questions we got in the mailbag episode was, hey, Tyler, you know, how can uh, how can we improve our pass rush? And when I told you guys, and I believe this is partly true, it's a tough one, but we we generally speaking have defended Bo Nix with a mush rush type pass rush, trying to design to keep him in the pocket and keep him escaping and make him a pocket passer because we know Bo Nix cannot beat you if he's sitting there in the pocket. That's true. That is That is a true thing. That's a real thing. 
But I went back and looked at the numbers. And, you know, even though that's how we've always kind of defended Bo Nix, we still sacked him nine times in the three previous games in which we played played Auburn with Bo Nix as their quarterback. So averaging three sacks a game against Bo Nix the first three times we played him. Had zero sacks this game. Now, part of that is that Oregon's offensive line is very good. That is a very good offensive line, guys. I will stand by that's I'm not ready to say it's the best offensive line in the country, but it's a veteran unit. It's played a lot of football, talented guys. Some guys can be playing in the NFL. Alex Forsyth, for example, can be playing in the NFL. That's a really good group. So that's part of it, but that's not the whole story. The other part of this is we don't have those dynamic elite pass rushers on this team. Like who are those guys? Honestly, do we have like any true, like legit natural pass rushers? I know you want to say Nolan Smith because he was an edge rusher coming out of high school, the former number one overall recruit coming out of high school. And Nolan has been fantastic for us. He deserves all the credit he gets, but it's been primarily as a rush defender. And he's got great athleticism. He's got a great motor. He runs all over the field, plays really hard for us. He's fantastic. I love Nolan, but Nolan has never been a dominant pass rusher for us. The guy's only got eight and a half sacks in three years. His entire career, eight and a half sacks. That's just not his game. He doesn't, he's got the like the athleticism to do it, but he's just never really developed a polished pass rush game. He's got a, a good speed move. That doesn't win. He doesn't really have an answer. He's got a nice little inside move he uses at times, but that's really about it. And it's it's crazy to me how he has not developed more as a pass rusher because I think he has the skill set to do that, but he's just never really been that guy for us. Robert Beal, is a high motor guy. He's more of a polished pass rusher than, than Nolan is, but he's not a dynamic pass rusher. He's not an Adam Anderson type guy off the edge. He's not an Aziz Ojolari or Jermaine Johnson guy off the edge. He's not that kind of guy. I know he led us in sacks last year, but he's still not that kind of edge rusher. And the guys that we relied almost heavily last year to rush the passer were our inside linebackers. And we don't have those guys right now. I mean, I'm going to get to the inside linebackers in general in just a second. But none of those guys, not even one of them, is remotely close to any of the three guys that we had last year. It was Quay Walker, Jacoby Dean, or Chain Tindall when it comes to rushing the passer. I think they have the skill sets to eventually get there, but they're young. They've never really done it. They haven't developed that yet. And if one game is all we have to work off of, which it is, all we have to work off of, I didn't see any of those guys who are ready to disrupt the quarterback the way that our three inside linebackers did last year. I mean, those guys were dynamic rushing the passer. And over 70% of our pressures last year came from inside linebackers. I just don't know that we have those guys. So if we don't have the elite edge rushers, if we don't have the elite pass rushing inside linebackers, I think we have guys who can be elite players, but are they ready to be elite pass rushers at this point? I didn't see that on Saturday. I am concerned about where that pass rush comes from. And that's one of those things, leaving the game, I wasn't all that concerned. It's like, hey, you know what, it's Bo Nix, is how we defend him, which is kind of true. But Go back and rewatching it. I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, man, like I know Oregon's offensive line is good. There's that, but we just don't have those guys right now. And doesn't mean the defense can't be good. Doesn't mean that we don't have good players. It can be good. Our defense will be good, and we do have good players. They're just a little bit different, and they just aren't as experienced. They don't have as many reps doing that kind of stuff as some of the guys that we lost from last year's team. So I, I'm interested. I mean, Jalen Carter might be that guy for us, honestly, guys, from the interior of the defensive line, and we use him in different ways on third down packages. I mean, we brought in like Xavier Sori. He plays inside linebacker for us. I guess he's technically in the rotation, but he didn't play much on standard downs. We brought him in almost exclusively on third downs to rush the passer from that inside linebacker spot, which if you think about it, it makes sense because, you know, he was the guy coming out of high school that he was kind of a tweener. It's like, what is he, are we going to use him as an inside linebacker or an outside linebacker? He played really 
more on the edge in high school. I thought, honestly, he was going to be an outside linebacker, which kind of depended on how his body grew and what he grew into. And he just didn't continue to grow bigger. So he fits more an inside linebacker. He has the athleticism to do that, but he has those pasturous skills. Kind of like Quay Walker. In a way, Quay Walker played a lot on the perimeter in, in high school. But, you know, Quay wasn't doing this his freshman year. You know what I mean? Like, or his, his redshirt freshman year even. He just wasn't doing that. It took him a while. And Sorry, I think, can be that guy, but he's not ready to be a Quay Walker level pass rusher right now. So I don't know. I have some concerns there. And let's, speaking of inside linebackers, let's just go there. Okay, our inside linebackers, man, they're um, all over the place. Talented guys. They're all talented. I, they're going to be very good. But week one, we were very fortunate to only give out three points with some of the mistakes that they were making. And sometimes it's obvious. I sit there like, oh my God, like you just didn't cover this guy. Like, what are you doing? Stand there like your head just turn around in circles like you don't know where to go. Sometimes it was something like, you know, like uh, Smile Mondin, for example. There was one play Oregon had in the first quarter that completed a pass on a third down where he just got way, way too deep in his drop. I mean, he was almost like back with the safeties in his drop. It's like, hey, dude, you play middle linebacker. You don't drop that far. We have guys back there. You have a different zone. Like the deep middle is not the curl zone. And that's okay. It's it's his first game. Those are the kinds of things that you kind of expect from those guys who have never played before. And that's, you know, I told you guys coming into the week that I was concerned about the 17 points. Like I thought we were going to win pretty comfortably, but 17 I didn't feel great about like covering that spread. Obviously, I was very wrong in that, but part of my concern was we have so much youth and experience in that front seven, and Oregon's got a really good offensive line, and I thought there were going to be some mistakes made, and Oregon maybe capitalized on that. I just It's crazy that I am the guy who undersold how bad Bo Nix is, because I've been ripping Bo Nix his entire career, so he kind of helped us out there, but there were a lot of mistakes that I, I expected, because they're young, and they haven't played a lot if really at all so um yeah it's not crazy thing it happened but it did happen and uh i'm concerned there some of the things we talked about on the recap episode there were a lot of pick plays oregon was certainly trying to pick our inside linebackers and, and get their guys on the perimeter but there were some plays like you had you have to be able to recognize that you have to see that coming especially when you've seen it a couple times and you have to be prepared and be able to take better angles to the football and that was one of the things that we struggled with like curtis brought up we were out of position at times and he, we, he was right. Like, go back and rewatch it. Those guys, it wasn't just the pick plays. There was more than just that. Those guys were out of position. Sometimes they were just mental busts. Sometimes they're chopping too, too far in coverages. There were a couple plays where, you know, there's one play in particular where Smile Mond, and I don't pick it on him because he played the most of our inside linebackers. He was supposed to have the flat, and he just didn't. He just kind of stood there. And the same thing with, there's a play with Malachi Starks who played fantastic for us but there was a completion that Oregon had. He clearly had the flat on that. We were playing cover three, and Keeley was dropping into the deep third, and Malachi, in that situation, as a safety, is supposed to drop into the flat. Malachi did not drop in the flat. He was kind of hanging in the middle of the field, and they complete a ball right there where he's supposed to be in the flat. I think it was for a first down, another one for a first down, and Ringo looks at him as like, just points, like, dude, that's where you're supposed to be. And it's like, yeah, those kind of things are going to happen. I'm glad they happened in this game where we won by 46 points. And those are teaching moments, very valuable teaching moments. That's what coaches want. Like, if you don't want your guys to mess up, but you know young guys are going to mess up. And if they're going to mess up, you want them to be able to do it and have those teaching moments on tape and still win by 46 points and get away with a victory. But those guys have got to grow up and they've got to get better. And one thing I am concerned about, I don't I don't like the, the game plan that Oregon had coming to this. I think they should have run the ball right at us. I am concerned about teams that will run the football right at us. Like Florida is going to do that. Kentucky is going to do that. Auburn is going to do that. Now, the thing is, we just have far more overall talent than those teams. We should not lose to any of those teams. But I think that's the way to challenge our defense right now because 
Not only is it inside linebackers who are out of position, those guys are going to get better. They're going to improve at that. Those are very easily correctable things. Here's another thing that I am concerned about that I, that is not as easily correctable. Who's the answer at nose guard? Like, who is that guy? I, it, it, Zion Lowe did not start, which did not surprise me. I'd heard as fall camp went on, it was Nazir Stackhouse who was getting more of those reps. But we, and I told you guys in the offseason, we do not have a Jordan Davis on this team. That person does not exist. We knew that coming into this season. And that was a concern of mine. I told you guys, like, Every, every time anyone asks me, like, what's your biggest concern this year? It's like, hey, run game, like rush defense. That's been the key to our success defensively, being able to defend the run with even numbers. And without Jordan Davis, who was like the key to that, he was like the key to the key. I've had concerns. I mean, we're still really, really talented. You still have Jalen Carter, who's amazing, as good as there is in the, in the country on the defensive line. But you got an experienced inside linebacker. You've got one still on the defensive line. You have other guys that are good, but you don't have that big space eater which was a big key for us, guys. It's a huge, huge, huge key for us. And we just got physically, like there were times where Oregon did physically move us. And I'm not used to seeing that, at least in the Jordan Davis era, the past couple of years. Not used to seeing that. It's been a minute since I've seen our guys get moved in the interior like that. So I really don't know how that is going to play out. That is certainly a concern for me. And we need to find, I, I, the answer, I don't think the answer is on the team. I, I, I think guys like Christian Miller and Bear Alexander could be answers for us, but they're freshmen, guys. It's so like that's the hardest thing to do as a true freshman is to play in the trenches because it's such a man's game there. It's a physical game. You need dudes that are big and strong. These guys are big and strong for like high school players, for 18-year-olds. They're not big and strong for like a 21-year-old, like a lot of these offensive linemen they're gonna go against. So hopefully they can grow up and be those guys at some point in the season, but they're not there right now. And I'm concerned. I am concerned about that. And maybe this is is me just, you know, being the Larry Munson guy, the Vince Dooley guy, and have my anxiety kick in, but I mean, I'm telling you guys, I watched that tape. And Oregon's offensive line is really, really good. Probably, maybe the best offensive line we're going to play all year. That's certainly possible. But we do not have that guy right now at nose guard. And we haven't, that hasn't been a problem for us in years. And I'm curious to see how that plays out and what our defensive staff is going to do to adjust to that deficiency. All right, guys, I promise we're going to get to the power rankings here in just a minute. But one last thing, I just missed this. I skipped over this. Here's one more good thing. Let's end this on a good note here before we get to the power rankings. Tight end blocking, wide receiver blocking absolutely amazing. And I, I meant to mention this on the recap episode and I, like we just got talking about different things and it just slipped my mind. And I didn't fit it in there and we didn't get a question about it on the mailbag, but I want to bring it up here. Like I have to talk about, the, about this during the week at some point and that time is right now. Oh my God. Like Jesus Christ. Tight ends, like we know Darnell, what he brings to the table, but Darnell, now that he's healthy, being able to move on the perimeter better than he ever has and get out there as a lead blocker along with Brock on the perimeter on, on screens and things like that. I mean, yes, Kenny McIntosh had a fantastic game, nine catches, what, 117 yards, amazing. But he had a lot of guys blocking and leading the way for him and those tight ends were at the forefront there and the receivers, Jesus, I mean, good God. A.D. Mitchell mauling guys in the end zone on touchdown runs. Lad McConkie, undersized. Who freaking cares? That dude's just going to put it on the line. Blocking his tail off out there. Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, doing a fantastic job on the perimeter as well. Even he didn't get as, as much playing time. Dominic Blaylock, I thought, did a really good job. Those guys have bought in. I'm going to give Brian McClendon some credit. They have bought in to the blocking game. And if you go back to, you know, 2017 or so, 2017, 2018, we were biting off those chunk yards when it came to running the football. We were just biting off big chunks, big explosive plays in the run game. We haven't seen that as much lately. A big part of that is because we haven't been blocking as well in the perimeter. Well, that might be changing again, and you might see some more explosive plays in the run game, obviously the screen game as well. So I just got to give those guys a pound in the back because no one really talks about that when you do those things. 
But, dude, it is so, so important for the success of your offense and the explosiveness of your offense. So just another example of how Kirby has established the culture and Brian McClendon coming back in and, and doing a hell of a job there with those receivers. And guys, before we move into our power rankings, I do want to remind you about Alumni Hall. Let's not forget about our good friends over there on the Epps Bridge Parkway. Alumni Hall has it all, guys. For a Georgia fan, it is a paradise. It is a paradise on earth. Whether you're looking for Nike gear, Nike golf, Cutter and Buck, you're looking for Peter Millar, Johnny O, which has become my favorite pretty quickly over the years, Columbia, whatever you're looking for, they've got you covered. They've got Georgia gear, game day gear, they've got tailgate gear, stuff for your home, stuff for your wife, stuff for your kids, stuff for your girlfriend, stuff for your boyfriend, if you're one of the one of our lady listeners, anything you want with a G on it. They've got it. And you guys know I'm a, I'm a vintage Georgia gear kind of guy, and they have by far the best collection of vintage Georgia gear that you are going to find anywhere. So go ahead, stop in the Alumni Hall in person, the Epps Bridge Shopping Center here in the Classic City, or shop online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Okay, guys. As promised, let's get to those SEC power rankings. This is something that we've never done before in this show. I've never actually given out any sort of power rankings, at least as far as I can remember, we've done this for a while now. This is the eighth season we've done this, but some of y'all who've been here since the beginning, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we've ever done this as far as I can remember. So I'm excited about it. And if you guys enjoy it, hey, this might be something we bring back on a weekly basis. But for now, it's just for this week and for games like this where we're playing an opponent that is overmatched and no one wants to listen to a full-on preview of. So we're going to give this a shot. And quickly before I kind of go through the rankings here, I do just kind of want to lay out how I went about this. Of course, we only have one week of data points to operate off of. It's only week one. And most of these teams in the SEC, absent like maybe four or five teams, went baby seal clubbing. They were playing the Little Sisters of the Poor. So especially this week, these rankings are they're pretty much a combination of what I have actually seen from each of these teams and what I also believe to be true of their talent level and potential, which I had to lean on a little bit for a lot of these teams. They didn't play anybody that was worth anything, so I don't know what you can tell about those games. And these are power rankings, guys. I'm going to emphasize that. They are power rankings. This is not a poll. This is not based on who is most deserving or anything like that. This is based on like, okay, if these teams lined up and played, who would win? That's kind of how I'm approaching this. So 
Let's get right to it. We're going to start the bottom and work our way up. The bottom, I don't think this is any surprise. I don't think there is any mystery here. And look, I'm not going to spend that much time talking about these teams at the bottom. I'll spend a little bit more time talking about the teams closer to the top. But coming in at number 14 on the Glory UGA inaugural SEC Power Rankings, are the Vanderbilt Commodores. And I will give Vanderbilt this. I thought about the possibility of, I don't know, potentially having them at maybe 13th and not 14th because they did look really good against Hawaii. And yeah, I know it's Hawaii who might be one of the worst D1 teams in the entire country, if not the worst. I guess maybe UConn still has that honor, but Hawaii's certainly somewhere in that conversation. So I don't know how much stock to put into that, but Vanderbilt did beat the holy hell out of Hawaii. 63 to 10. And guys, I know Hawaii sucks. Vanderbilt does not do that to anybody. This is a team that lost to East Tennessee State at home last season. So even though Hawaii's terrible, just the mere fact that Vanderbilt was able to score 63 points on anyone and not just like air at practice, that's a step in the right direction. But then they come back and they follow that up at home against Elon. And they win that game only 42-31. to 31. So maybe Elon's better than Hawaii. And the Commodores actually got outgained. They got outgained in that game by Elon, 495 to 424. They just didn't turn the ball over at all, which, hey, that helps you win games, especially tight games like that. But Vanderbilt is at least competent offensively, which they were not at all last year. Mike Wright gives them a little bit better of a chance than Ken and Seals did. And, and Wright played some last year. He played some against us. I thought that he moved the ball better than Seals did when he was in the game. But uh, he's thrown the ball well. He's definitely a threat with his legs. If you watch the Hawaii game, he broke like a 75-plus yarder, and that guy can absolutely fly through four touchdown passes against Elon. So yeah, you know, Vanderbilt a little bit better, but still we're talking about the SEC, the big boy league. They are still bringing up the rear at number 14. At number 13, there are two teams I considered here. It was either going to be Auburn or Missouri. Two teams that actually do play each other this year. I ended up going with Missouri. Neither team was especially impressive in week one against overmatched opponents, but Missouri had a little bit more trouble. Now, Louisiana Tech certainly is better than Mercer, but Louisiana Tech was actually up going into the second quarter. Not, not by much. It was 3-0, but they led Missouri 3-0 in the second quarter, but then Mizzou kind of got themselves together and they put up a 24 spot in the second quarter in route to a 52-24 victory. I actually like the coaching staff at Missouri better than the coaching staff at Auburn. I like Drinkwitz more than I do Brian Harson, especially when you factor in just the drama surrounding Brian Harson, that Auburn program in general. But when it comes down to it, I just think overall Auburn has more talent than Missouri. Missouri's actually been recruiting better recently, getting a guy like Luther Burden, getting a guy like Ennis Rickestraw a couple years ago when, when Bama was actually after him, and then getting a guy like Sam Hill at the quarterback position here from here in Georgia at Collins Hill High School. So they've been recruiting a little bit better, but they still don't have the talent that Auburn has. Auburn hasn't been recruiting as well as they normally do over the past three to four years, but they still have a better roster than Missouri. So for that reason, I'm going to go Missouri at 13, and I got Auburn coming in at number 12. Not a believer in either one of those teams. And coming in at number 11, this is Georgia's week three opponent. I know Gamecock fans will lose their mind if they heard this ranking, but I got the South Carolina Gamecocks coming in at number 11 in our inaugural SEC power rankings. And it was a rough look for the Gamecocks at home week one against Georgia State. Now, look, Georgia State has become a respectable 
Sunbelt team, but it's still a Sunbelt team. It's still a G5 team. Carolina had them at home. This is another team in the SEC, like Vanderbilt, who actually got outgained by their overmatched opponent. Georgia State, not by much, but Georgia State outgained South Carolina 311 to 306 yards. But Carolina had a couple short fields, and they actually had two block punts that they returned for touchdowns, which made this score a little bit more lopsided than the actual game really was. And then there's Spencer Rattler, right? The, the great hope for the South Carolina faithful. Well, uh, yeah, his debut in Krakalaki was not exactly what their, their, their faithful were going for. 23 of 37, 227 yards, only 6.1 yards per attempt. A touchdown, two picks. Get this, a 28.6 QBR. If you guys aren't familiar with how QBR is rating, it's on a scale of 0 to 100. 28.6, that's a lot closer to 0 than a 100. So not the best performance there. They had trouble running the football, 32 carries for 79 yards, 2.5 yards a carry against Georgia State. I know it's week one and you don't really like to overreact either way, but that's certainly got to be some cause for concern there for the Gamecock fans. I told you guys in the offseason, there's a reason that Spencer Rattler was transferring. He's better than any option they had at any point last year. That's certainly true, but this notion that they were getting this five-star transfer from Oklahoma, I guess in name only they were getting a five-star transfer. He was a five-star, but at no point has Spencer Rattler played at a five-star level, and I thought it was a little bit of folly for the... Carolina fans to expect him to just show up in Columbia and be like, oh yeah, now he's going to be a five-star now when he doesn't have Lincoln Riley, who's one of the foremost offensive minds in the entire country. So that's, I don't want to say I expected him to have a 28.6 QBR, but I didn't think he was going to be outstanding. Now week one, again, don't overreact, but certainly a little bit of an inauspicious start there for Spencer Rattler and the South Carolina Gamecocks got them coming in at number 11. Coming in at number 10, I'm sticking with my preseason prediction here. We'll get to one in a minute that I might not be sticking with as much, but we'll see what happens. Kentucky. I know there's a lot of people that are still very high on Kentucky. Chris Doring, as Charlie brought up in our predictions episode, famously picked them to, I think, go 10-2 and two and, and knock us off. Well, I had them going 6-6 six and six when we did our preseason predictions episode. I am sticking by that, especially now that the suspension of Chris Rodriguez and a couple other guys is official official. We still don't know exactly how long it's going to be, but the word is, we know he didn't play week one. The word is he's not going to play against Florida. I had Florida winning that game against Kentucky in week two at home in the Swamp. I feel even better about that now that we know for sure, which I thought was going to be the case, but we know for sure that Chris Rodriguez is not playing. One of their other running backs who's been filling in for him is out for the season with an ACL tear in week one. So... I told you guys two weeks ago, I think Kentucky's going to lose to Florida. I still think Kentucky's going to lose to Florida. In fact, Florida's performance against Utah reaffirmed that that belief. They played fine against Miami of Ohio. Will Levis had a pretty big day, but against Miami of Ohio, this Kentucky offense always, was only able to manage 50 yards rushing, only 1.9 yards per attempt. So it wasn't like you know our game where we just didn't run the ball as much, but when we ran the ball, we, we had some success. They ran the ball 26 times for only 50 yards against Miami of Ohio. And Will Levis is a good, solid quarterback. He's got a, a great skill set. But if he's going to have to be the guy you rely on, especially without Chris Rodriguez, to lead this offense to victories and, and to actually put the offense on his back, I don't know if, if he can do that. I don't know if they have the receivers for him to work with either. So I'm sticking with the 6-6 six and six prediction here, maybe a 7-5 and five team here. But uh, I got Kentucky coming in at number 10 in our inaugural power rankings. I just don't know what they do especially well right now. And then coming in number 9, Coming off one of the more disappointing efforts in the SEC in Week 1, I've got the Ole Miss Rebels. Now, this is the team that I had going 8-4 and four in the regular season. I still feel like that's a, a very doable record for Ole Miss this year, but I have to admit, I have some concerns about their offense after their Week 1 effort against Troy. 
They put up 433 total yards, sure, but that's not altogether Ole Miss-like. This is a team that averages roughly around 500 or so yards a game when things are hitting on all cylinders. Now, they had a bunch of transfers coming in this season. There's a lot of new faces, new pieces, new offensive coordinator, and it just did not click in week one. I mean, the new quarterback, Jackson Dart, coming in from USC, was only 18 of 27 for 154, only 5.7 yards per attempt. That is not what you typically see from Ole Miss quarterback, especially when everyone's healthy in week one. Now, Zach Evans, who I think is going to be one of the best running backs, if not the best running back in the entire SEC this year, if he can just stay out of trouble off the field, had 20 carries for 130 yards. That guy is legit. But if they can't find a way to get more production from the quarterback position and the pass game in general, they're definitely not going to have a chance to beat the better teams on their schedule. And I have some concerns about that 8-4 and four prediction. Now, if it's just a week one thing and there's a lot of new faces, new pieces, and it all fit into place later on, that's fine. I feel okay. Now, the, the first seven games are pretty light for Ole Miss. So they have some, they have some time to get everyone up to speed and figure out how the pieces fit together. We got Troy, then they got Central Arkansas this week at Georgia Tech. They're going to, I mean, Tech is, is Tech, guys. We know what Tech is. Then Tulsa at home, Kentucky at home, at Vanderbilt, Auburn at home. They, again, I told you guys in the, in the preseason, I think they could start 7-0. and Then it gets tough at LSU, at A&M, Alabama, at Arkansas, and then wrapping things up with Mississippi State. So I think this is a team that could easily start 6-1, and 7-0, and then end up 8-4. and I'm going to stick with that for now, but... I'm concerned about the offense, but hey, their defense only gave up 10 points. Now, Troy is is nothing to be, you know, all that frightened of offensively, but it's kind of like the Vanderbilt offense. Sure, it was against Hawaii, but when Vanderbilt puts up 63 points, you take notice. Sure, it's against Troy, but when Ole Miss holds anybody to 10 points, you stand up and take notice. So maybe that's a positive sign for the Rebels. All right, coming in at number eight. Now, this is a team that I was inexplicably, and I will own that, inexplicably high on coming into this season. I have the LSU Tigers after their week one loss to Florida State on Sunday night coming in at number eight. Now, this is a tough one for me because I do think LSU still has a lot of talent. And that was the whole idea behind my 10-2 prediction for LSU this year. I had them as the team that was going to beat Alabama. I had Alabama losing one game, had them losing at LSU. And that was simply based on the amount of talent that is in Baton Rouge. They have talent all over the place, guys. Keishon Butte, we told you guys about him. I mean, you knew about him. That guy, if he's actually willing to play and he's not pitching a fit on the field, one of the, if not the best receivers in the entire SEC. Mason Smith tore his ACL, though. Mason Smith was a top 10 recruit coming out of high school. One of the best teams in line in the, in the SEC, but he tore his ACL, jumping up and down, celebrating against Florida State. But I think there's still some talent on this team. Jaden Daniels is an athletic guy. I think he raised the ceiling of this LSU team. If he can just like go through progressions and not just take off and run after his first read. Uh, I like some of the weapons they have in the backfield. It doesn't help that John Emery was out. And that's the thing about the Florida State game. Yeah, they lost that game, and they lost in a bad way, humiliating way they lost that game. Really an an inexcusable way to lose that game. But they played very, very poorly in that game, and they still only lost that game by one point. Mason Smith went down early in that game. You also had Ali Gay, who got thrown out of the game with a targeting penalty. He's a really good pass rusher for LSU. No John Emery at running back. So there's some extenuating circumstances there. I still think LSU's a very, very talented team. One thing I will own up to, and I will admit, is that I kind of underestimated the Brian Kelly factor. And 
the the reality that's going to probably take some time for him to establish his culture and just kind of clean up things after the Coach O situation. And case in point, obviously, was if you watched the the Florida State game, the Keishon Butte situation where like he wouldn't get the ball like he wanted to early, and he was just literally being a child out there, just pouting. And then he scrubs his social media of, of all references to LSU, and it's like, dude, come on, like chill out. So that's the kind of stuff that I did not account for. This was truly just like a talent play for me. And I still think the talent is there for them to go 10 and 2. But right now, I, I especially after the loss to Florida State, that 10 and 2 record was contingent upon them beating Florida State. They did not. So I, I, I still think they can be an, an 8 and 4 if if things go really right, 9 and 3. But I'm going to back off on the 9 and 3 right now because I need to see them kind of stabilize. If they start to stabilize, then then okay. And they have a couple weeks. You got Southern this week, Mississippi State at home. I think that Mississippi State, we're going to get to them. That's a pretty good football team then New Mexico at Auburn I don't think highly of Auburn Tennessee but Tennessee comes to Baton Rouge so there's some time to kind of get into the swing of things before you hit the heart of this schedule but obviously they've got to clean up some things and stop shooting themselves in the foot and blowing games that's what happened I mean give Florida State some credit they played well but LSU handed that game to Florida State and should have won but you know should have doesn't matter they did not win so right now I'm backing off LSU a little bit I still believe in the talent but the situation that they're in right now and just kind of the culture of that team, that has me certainly doubting my 10-2 and two prediction. And then coming in at number seven, right there at the heart of the SEC, right at the midpoint here, I've got the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Now, this is a team that I did put a, a, a win total bet on to go over six and a half. I've got them, I had them going eight and four, and I feel pretty good about that, especially after watching them beat Memphis in week one. This is a team that was much better than their record suggested they were last year. They just kind of found ways to lose games, especially when it came to poor kicking and just special teams in general. But they have a ton of returning production, including a third-year starting quarterback in Will Rogers. I like the receiving court. It's Their offense is just something different. And Mike Leach has done a really good job of adjusting to how SEC defenses try to defend him once he first came to the league. If you remember back in 2020, they had that breakout game against LSU, right? The defending national champion LSU in Baton Rouge. And they broke out there and then defenses started to play them like basically just drop eight stuff. And they kind of just completely fell apart throughout 2020. But they bounced back last year because they made some adjustments to how defenses in this league were defending them. And now they've kind of become a ball control offense. They were one of the top 10 teams in the country in terms of time of possession last year. And this is an air raid Mike Leach offense. You would never, ever think of them and associate them with high degrees of of time of possession, but that's what they've become. I think this is a Mississippi State team that has enough talent and experience to beat most of the teams they sh- to beat all the teams that they should be on their schedule, and I think they have enough talent and experience to, s- to just jump up and bite one of the better teams they probably shouldn't beat on their schedule. Be that Texas A&M, Arkansas, or hell, even us. I mean, we're better than Mississippi State, but I, I told you guys before the season I thought that might be the trickiest spot or one of the trickiest spots on our schedule considering the circumstances coming off the the games against Florida and Tennessee, then going on the road in a place that we don't normally play, in the middle of nowhere, cowbells, defending national champion, the whole nine yards. We should still win the game, but I mean, look, Mississippi State is a talented team, an experienced team that is good enough to put a scare in somebody that is more talented than they are. And coming in at number six, now this is one that might surprise some people. I'm probably going to have some people calling me a hater. None of you would probably call me a hater because... You know, we hate the Gators. 
But if a Florida fan was listening to this, they would certainly call me a hater. But I got Florida coming in at number six. I know there's a lot of people that have Florida certainly inside their top five, maybe even inside their top three after beating a top 10 opponent in Utah at home in week one. And that was an impressive performance. Florida played better in that game than I thought that they would. I predicted Utah to win that game. I had a little bit of money on Utah to win that football game. Sometimes you get them wrong, and that one I certainly got wrong. Now saying that, I still think Utah is a better team. I, I really do. And Utah should have won that football game. Those of you who watch it, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't watch it, they had the ball inside the five-yard line twice and got zero points out of it. One time, they got stuffed. This horrible, honestly, horrible play calling. Should just quarterback sneak. You have a mobile quarterback, a big physical guy. They're on like the half-inch line, and they turn around and hand it off. The running back literally trips over his own two feet, hits a divot in the ground, falls down about the three-and-a-half-yard line, and so that takes away that advantage. They ended up not scoring at all there. They went on fourth and fourth down and got stuffed. Just terrible, terrible decision-making and just bad luck, I guess, with the running back falling down. And then on the last drive of the game, trying to win it inside the five-yard line, Cam Rising just threw an inexplicably bad interception. Just, I mean, I don't know what he was looking at. Yeah, the tight end fell down, but there was no way, even if he didn't fall down, that ball was being completed. Just no chance whatsoever. And they were in chip shot field goal range to tie the game and send to overtime. So I think they're the better team. I think they played that game 10 times. Utah probably won seven or eight of them, but that's not how these things work. Florida won the game when it was played on the field and you got to give them credit. And they were better than I anticipated them being. A big part of that was the play of Anthony Richardson. That's the one thing I said about Florida. I thought that Florida's a seven and five, six and six caliber team. But if Anthony Richardson played at an extraordinarily high level and was the guy that their fans were hoping that he was, that all bets are off and they could be maybe a, an 8-4, and four, potentially even a 9-3 and three caliber team. And week one, if the results are, are to be believed, Anthony Richardson certainly looked better than he did at any point last year. And that will lead you to believe that 6-6 six and six is probably a little bit low for Florida right now. Now, I look at their schedule. And I, I mean, I had them predicted 6-6. Six and six. I had them losing to Utah. So I think probably 7-5 and five now. But I had them beating Kentucky. That was calculated into my 6-6 six and six record. Uh, but I don't think they're going to win at Tennessee. I still don't think they're going to beat LSU. I mean, maybe they can beat LSU at home. Okay, so maybe that's one that they can get with what we saw from LSU. Potentially, Florida could get that one. Uh, that I'm not going to argue with. I don't think they're beating us. I don't think they're going to go into College Station and beat Texas A&M. And I think that they're going to lose to Florida State. I think Florida State, yeah, I know we watched the LSU game. I mentioned LSU kind of blew that game. I think Florida State's actually a pretty good football team. I think they're only going to get better. I actually really like Jordan Travis at quarterback. That game's in Tallahassee. I mean, that's a game Florida could win, but they could easily lose that game as well. So maybe 7-5, and 8-4 and four is more realistic now than 6-6, six and six, especially with that win over Utah. But if you look at the teams I have above Florida, I think if they played those teams on the actual field of play, I think they will lose to each of the teams I have above them inside my top five in these power rankings. Which, let's go ahead and do it. Let's get into the top five. Coming in at number five. This is another one that people might raise a few eyebrows, but I've got the Texas A&M Aggies coming in at number five in my power rankings right now. Now, this one's tough for me because I do think they are one of the three most talented teams in the entire SEC. I do believe that. I mean, that's... That's just fact in terms of when you're looking at recruiting rankings, they are one of the three most talented teams in the league, along with obviously Georgia and Alabama. But there's just something about this Texas A&M team, especially this offense. 
They have not been explosive under Jimbo Fisher. That's been one of their biggest issues. They are a grinded out team that just struggles to score. It's it's laborious for them to go down the field and actually score points. A big part of that is they haven't had that guy at quarterback. Now, I know they're hoping that Haynes King ends up being that guy. It did not look that way early on in week one, but he did recover nicely and put up uh, a good day. I mean, 20-31, 364, three touchdowns, two interceptions, under 50 QBR though. The two interceptions, not great, but they didn't run the ball especially well against, I mean, Sam Houston State guys. This is a, a clearly overmatched team. Only had 110 yards rushing on 32 carries, 3.4 yards per carry. Devon A-Chain, their, their number one guy, only 42 yards on 18 carries, 2.3 yards per attempt. This is just, it's the same old story for this AM offense. And I thought maybe they could be more explosive this year, getting a true freshman like Evan Stewart at receiver, who's an explosive playmaker. And Nia Smith, this is a guy that that should be putting up more explosive plays, but there's something about this offense. There's like a regulator on it with Jimbo Fisher. They just aren't explosive. And I think a big part of that is quarterback, but I think also just the way that Jimbo calls games and approaches offensive football, they're not pushing the ball down the field vertically. They're not generating explosive plays at a high enough rate to consistently beat the better teams on their schedule. Yeah, I know they beat Alabama last year. They played the game of the century, the game of their lives, and and they barely won that game playing the game of their lives. But they don't do that on any sort of consistent basis. I mean, sure, they beat Alabama at home, then turn around and lose to Mississippi State at home. I don't know why it's going to be different for AM this year. I really don't know why it would be different. So until I see it more consistently on offense, see them be more consistently explosive, I just can't buy into AM being one of those teams that's truly going to be contending for the SEC championship this year. I think in the future, if they continue to recruit the way that they have, they might just have so much talent, it doesn't matter what the offensive game plan and scheme is. But they aren't quite there yet. They they have some really talented guys. Most of their most talented players are freshmen, and I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, some of those guys, like Evan Stewart, they're going to play. They're going to be major contributors. But it, to me, it comes down to the quarterback position, and I'm not convinced they have the answer there. Very small sample size. We've only seen two games, really, with Haynes King at quarterback. Got injured in game two last year. We'll see how he progresses down the road, but I need to see it from him before I move them up my rings. I'm very, I'm very open to the possibility of moving A&M up but I've just got to see it from his offense before I do that. And then at number four, I've got Sam Pittman and the Arkansas Razorbacks. Now, I know this might be a little aggressive, but I am just a believer in what Sam Pittman is doing in Arkansas. I'm a believer in the culture he has established. I'm a believer in the continuity that they have with both coordinators back for the third year in a row, and they're two fantastic coordinators, obviously, with Barry Adam on defense and Kendall Bryles on offense. They have an identity. They have an established culture. They've done all that. They've put in that work, and this is the year I think they're going to start to reap some of those rewards. Now, saying that, their schedule is absurd. It's an extraordinarily difficult schedule. I mean, in the, in the non-conference, they had Cincinnati, which was a tough, hard fall game. They were able to win that game, so already got that one. They also have to go to BYU later in the year. Then, of course, you have your SEC West schedule, and that's always a murderer's row. But I still, I have Arkansas going 9-3, and and I'm going to stick by that right now. I have a massive, massive win total bet, the biggest win total bet I've ever put on a team on Arkansas to go over six and a half wins. I feel good about that, knock on wood, if they can stay healthy. But we saw a challenge when it comes to injuries already in week one for Arkansas. I know if you watch the Cincinnati game, Cincinnati started to mount a comeback in the second half and they were throwing the ball over the field. However, a big part of that was the fact that Arkansas had two stars in the secondary go down with injuries. Jaden Catalan and Miles Slusher both went down with injuries and they certainly, Cincinnati certainly targeted those backups and uh, has some success doing so. So hopefully they can get those guys back healthy if they do. I still like this Arkansas team. I love K.J. Jefferson at quarterback. That dude is just tough as nails, and he's a hard-nosed physical player. 
struggles as a passer sometimes the accuracy but uh, I love what he brings to the table he's a perfect fit for what they're trying to do offensively and by the way Raheem Sanders at running back that guy is awesome very 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 good running back that if you don't know that name you probably will pretty soon that dude can absolutely play and then finally moving inside the top three here now this is one I I don't know man I right now I've got him at number three but I don't know how long they will stick at number three but through one week I have tentatively, but they're there right now, the Tennessee Volunteers coming in at number three in my SEC power rankings here. Now, let me explain this, okay? A big part, that's actually the the decisive factor in having Tennessee at number three, is that they have an elite unit. Their offense is elite. That is easily a top 10 offense in the country, maybe even a top five offense in the country. They have whatever you need. They got the quarterback that can throw the ball vertically down the field. He's a dual threat with his legs. He can do. He can hurt you in the design run game. He can hurt you with scrambles and just creativeness and escapability. They have a, a good solid running back in Jabari Small. They have a couple of really good receivers. Obviously, Cedric Tillman, that's the dude. Jalen Hyatt, I know their staff is really high on. They expect him to break out, be an explosive playmaker for them. Brew McCoy, a former five-star guy that's transferred a couple times transferred in from um from from USC after having some let's say off the field issues is what we're going to call them but he got cleared to play so they have three guys that can absolutely make plays with them at wide receiver they have a great scheme that Josh Hypoy has implemented and they go up tempo that offense flat out elite I'm just going to call it what it is the problem for Tennessee and this is why I say tentatively have them at number three and why I'm not confident they will stick there defensively they're not great they're 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 fine they're not bad. They're just, they're not good. I don't, they're not great. I don't know who their big time playmakers are. And that's what I said about Tennessee coming this season is who are your game changers on demons? They have game changers on offense. They got a couple guys on offense that I would categorize as game changers. Defensively though, I have a hard time finding those guys. Byron Young at end, maybe, but like he's a good player. Game changer. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to go that far. I just don't know who those guys are. I know they like Jeremy Bangs at inside linebacker, but I, I not game changer. I mean, Nicobe Dean is a game changer. Jeremy Banks isn't a game changer. He's a good, solid player. But I need to see it from this defense for them to stick there. But when I'm looking at these other teams that are there in the top five, whether it's AM, whether it's Arkansas, Tennessee, talking about Florida, you just go outside the top five. The reason that I have Tennessee at number three, the separating factor, again, is that they have one surefire elite part of their team. Those other teams might be more well-rounded, but they don't necessarily have a surefire elite unit or elite part of their team. Arkansas, I love what they bring to the table. Are they elite offensively? No, they're really good, but they're not elite. Are they elite defensively? Definitely not. Good, but not elite. AM, they've got elite talent, but do they have an elite unit right now? Same thing with Florida. I think Anthony Richardson is is really, really good, but is their offense elite? No. Is their defense elite? No. So that's kind of the deciding factor here for me, and you might not agree with that, but because of that, I've got Tennessee coming in at number three. We'll see how long they stick. We're going to find out real quickly how real this Tennessee team is this weekend when they go to Pitt to play Pat Narduzzi and his Pittsburgh Panthers football team. And then, yes, you guys, I'm sure, have guessed it by now. You probably guessed it from the very beginning. The clear top two teams in the SEC in my initial power rankings are Georgia and Alabama. The only question here, the only mystery remaining is, what order do I have these two teams in? And if you listened to our mailbag episode earlier in the week, you know how I feel about who should be ranked number one right now. And call me a homer if you want. 
that's fine. But I can back this up, guys. Yes, I do indeed have the Georgia Bulldogs right now, following week one, coming in at number one in our Glory UGA SEC power rankings. Let me quickly explain why. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But again, quickly, when it comes to how I'm ranking these teams, how I'm doing my power rankings, it's a combination of what I've seen from these teams and what I believe to be true of their talent level and their potential. I think it's fair to say, now here's the thing about Alabama. We we don't, like what did we learn about Alabama in week one? Not, nothing as far as I'm concerned. Utah State, 55 nothing. okay, whatever, ho-hum. Like I learned nothing from that. We knew Bryce Young was awesome. Cool, yeah, we know that. We know that Will Anderson is awesome. Cool, yeah, we know that. There's nothing that we learned about that team from that game. So it's tough here. Georgia, however, I think there's a lot that we learned about this team as we've been detailing all throughout the entire week. So that's why I'm not going to go into crazy detail here because I've been doing that for the last three episodes. But us beating the number 11 team in the country, the way that we did. Now, is Oregon truly the number 11 team in the country? No, they're not the 11th best team in the country. We know that. But that's still a good football team. I know they're out of the AP rankings right now. They will probably find their way back in the AP rankings at some point this year. If not, they'll be right around there. I think it's an, probably an 8-4, and 9-3 caliber team considering the fact they play in the Pac-12. But we learned a lot about this Georgia football team. We learned what we have offensively. My expectation about this offense, I, I, I think they're pretty realistic now. When I told you guys they're going to be the best offense in Georgia history, I know it's a small sample size. We try not to overreact, but we kind of do. But like it, it, it also fits what I thought coming into the season. We just saw evidence of it in week one. Defensively, I think that we do still have some questions. I know they didn't necessarily... They did not hurt us and work against us in week one, holding holding Oregon to three points and 313 total yards. But I still think there's some questions about our run defense and the inexperience there. But the thing is, we're only going to get better. And when you're starting from a point where you only give up three points against a good, solid, respectable opponent, even though you made some mistakes, you still held them to three points, and even though you might have some questions against the run and, and finding who the pass rushers are going to be, we're only going to improve from here. And that's the scary thing about this Georgia team. The offense is hitting on all cylinders. And that is a sight to behold. But the defense is just going to continue to improve and get better and better as these young and experienced players grow up and get that inexperience and they become veterans. At some point this year, they will become veterans. They'll no longer be young and experienced guys. They'll be vets. And let's also not act as though Alabama does not have questions. We know what they have in in Bryce Young. We know what they have in Will Anderson, Dallas Turner, those kind of guys. I still have some questions about their offensive line. It's all relative. It's a really talented offensive line, but we're talking about national championship good. I have some questions there. I have some questions about the interior of their defense and their front seven, just like I do ours. I still have some questions about their receiving core. I think they're good. They're probably really good, but do they have those alpha guys they've had in the past like they did with Jamison Williams last year, like they had with Jalen Waddle in years past and Devontae Smith? I don't know that they have those kind of guys. I don't think that they really do, to be quite honest with you this year. doesn't mean they're not still going to be really, really good relative to everyone else, but are they going to be national and championship good? I think that still remains to be seen. So I think there's questions for both teams, but the decisive factor here has to be the performance that Georgia put together to just absolutely steamroll that Oregon Ducks football team 49-3. to And yeah, this is one of those things that could go back and forth on a week-by-week basis based on how Georgia and Alabama perform against each of their opponents the next couple of weeks. That that certainly could be the case. But right now, based off what we've seen to this point in this season, if we isolate it to this season, I've got Georgia number one in my SEC power rankings and Alabama coming in as a close second. 
But all right, guys, that is all I've got for you today. Charlie will be back with me tomorrow for our week two picks of the week. We're going to be using some more my bookie lines. So go ahead and sign up for that account now, guys. Do it while you can. Get that 100% bonus promotion so you guys can bet along with us and win some money just like Charlie and I all season long. And that's promo code UGA. But we will have that for you guys tomorrow. And that will lead us into week two against Samford. So have a fantastic weekend, guys. If you're coming to the game, enjoy yourselves. It's going to be um, probably pretty nasty this weekend here in the Classic City. That's what it's looking like right now. But hey, man, a little rain never stopped a good time. So come on up, have a good time, enjoy yourselves, and let's cheer on our dearly beloved Georgia Bulldogs. So I'm Tyler, and as always, Go dogs! <laughs>